in. Good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith back with another episode of Cinema, and it is brought to you by Dark Matter TV. Dark Matter TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple, or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. Godzilla vs. Kong. Now it's coming out in March, and they are promising a trailer drop this Sunday at the time of this recording. So we're gonna see what this is all like. And look, you know, I look at the trailer pieces that have leaked out here and there. It always comes down to this with a trailer. Guess we'll see. I'm hoping it'll be a lot of fun. And you can comment all you want on all of this. I am a huge Godzilla fan. I talk to a lot of Godzilla fans online and we go back and forth on what our favorite films are and, you know, the overall quality of the series and and on and on and on. So with Godzilla versus King Kong or King Kong versus Godzilla in the original 1963 film, uh, you you saw basically what was really a a kind of, I'm going to say it, it was kind of a cynical matchup. It wasn't like the movie was made for quality. Uh, Basically, what they did is they just matched up Godzilla uh, along with a very ratty looking kind of King Kong outfit and and very hokey. And in fact, some scenes at the end, you can see where the actor has uh, like the football uh, grease paint underneath his eyes to, to keep from, you know, showing the human skin underneath the costume. And we can go on forever about that. That's not what this this episode is about. It's rather looking at uh, the two remakes of both Godzilla and King Kong, Uh, Godzilla 1998 and King Kong 1976, and a look at whether cynicism plays into either. I I think you can tell where there there is more cynicism uh, in which film. But before that, I thought we'd look at uh, King Kong, and then of course, it's really lousy sequel, which a lot of people don't know. There was a sequel to the 1976 film uh, called King Kong Lives. And so we got to go back a little bit because when King Kong was announced as a remake, it was supposed to be released and it did in the bicentennial year of 1976. And it was a big deal uh, to touch a gigantic, beloved uh, Hollywood classic like the original King Kong. Well, you're, you're kind of playing with fire on this one, but if anybody could pull it off, it would be Dino De Laurentiis. Now, you younger viewers, you likely have no idea who legendary producer Dino De Laurentiis was. Uh, some saw him as the Italian forerunner of Michael Bay, a creator of expensive, big-budget, soulless films, followed by similar producers like uh, Alexander and, and Ilya Salkine, uh, Peter Gruber and John Peters, Jerry Bruckheimer, and and Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich that we'll get to in a little bit. And De Laurentiis said this about his humble beginnings. Just so you know, De Laurentiis was an interesting guy. He was one of the last of the giant Hollywood producers that, that made things bigger than life, but would turn around and financially support also uh, a, a lot of stuff that was much smaller. He was a really interesting guy. You know, it's a shame that he's gone. It really is because he supported a lot of smaller films. He loved making his big stuff, but man, did he support the smaller stuff. So he said this about himself one time in an interview. He said, after the war, World War II, there was no industry. We lost the war. He is talking about Italy. 
We had our whole city destroyed. No money, no studio, no film, no camera, no equipment. We would shoot in the street. We had no actors, nothing. But we wanted to do movies. And we did the best movies in the world. If you lived in a provincial town where there was nothing to do in the evening but go to the movies with your friends, the cinema was a world of fantasy. I had always been in love with it. That is someone who loves movies and loves filmmaking. So, Harrison, are you going to say that Dino De Laurentiis was cynical and that the King Kong 1976 remake classifies as cinema? Well, let's find out. De Laurentiis emerged from World War II Italy making low-budget films with his eyes on, on pictures of greater scale, and he would be eventually a, a legend in the business. He was a man seen by many as greater than life much like his movies. And De Laurentiis made some great films, man. Serpico, Three Days of the Condor, The Dead Zone, Ragtime, Lipstick. He was behind the Halloween films as well after the first one, including Halloween 3. And he also had his share of, of real bad cheese and outright dreadful films like Orca, Hurricane, King Kong Lives, Definitely, Flash Gordon, Barbarella, uh, the Amityville films, and the bankrupting 1984 Dune. I mean, again, it's up to you to decide whether they were good films or not. If they brought you joy and entertainment, that, that's a different thing. But De Laurentiis could flop all over the place and bring you, like I said, Oscar-winning material and content and turn right around and bring you Drek. But there's nothing inherently wrong with that. The 1976 King Kong is, is kind of fun to watch, but it's a blatant ripoff of the source material and did little to pay homage to, to the original. The 1976 remake of Kong follows cinema formula, and that is big money, big sets, big actors, big deal. But does it really provide entertainment? Now, here's the thing. You got a little bit of cinema here, C-Y-N-E-M-A, but you also, I believe, De Laurentiis had the true intention to entertain. In fact, he just wanted everything just bigger, and he thought that bigger would be better. I mean, the production made a fuss over a life-size robot Kong that ended up, if you if you blink, you'll miss it. But it's only used for a couple seconds in the finished film. And, and watch carefully, because again, better fire up the pause button, because you'll see the mechanical ape looks nothing like Rick Baker's Oscar-winning ape suit in the rest of the film. But they used it, and it was designed by Carlo Rimbaldi, who will go on to design uh, the mechanical effects for Alien and, of course, E.T. Much of De Laurentiis' financing for King Kong came from foreign pre-sales of the film, fueled by incessant and, frankly, downright fraudulent claims of how amazing his giant mechanical Kong would be. So De Laurentiis went out and got money for this movie, telling them, we're going to have a gigantic robot Kong in this movie, and wait do you see. And people said... I'll be in on this. It's like a P.T. Barnum thing almost, right? And he, he amasses all of this money in foreign pre-sales, and yet the, the robot is only in it. I'm telling you, it might be seven seconds tops. Look, even the poster lies. I mean, it's this big red, white, and blue poster, and I remember seeing it as a kid before we saw it in the theater, and Kong is straddling. He's got one foot on one Trade Center tower, and he's got a foot on the other, and he's gripping this, this fighter jet in his hands, and he's holding Jessica Lange, and he's crushing that fighter jet, and, and nothing like this happens in the film. There are no jets, period, just helicopters. 
And the poster is also painted with an emphasis, like I said, on that red, white, and blue because it was the nation's bicentennial. Kong is an American monster just as Godzilla is Japan's. De Laurentiis said this about his King Kong movie. He said, I, I know Spen, and I'm, I'm writing this because Saturday Night Live loved to make fun of him with John Belushi with his Italian accent. And he said, I know Spen two, three million to do quick business. I spend 24 million on my Kong. I give them quality. I got here a great love story, a great adventure. And she rated PG for everybody. De Laurentiis knew the deal, man. Again, he's like kind of like either a big budget Ed Wood or a filmmaking P.T. Barnum. But poor Ed Wood. All of his film's budgets combined wouldn't pay for the catering bill for the 1976 King Kong. I mean, it packs its roster with big name stars, Charles Grodin, who's terrific, and Jeff Bridges. And Jessica Lange still refuses to talk about this film, saying it pushed her into a year of acting lessons and wanted her image removed from the flashback opening of King Kong Lives. And really, who can blame her as she says to Kong with a straight face, and this is a piece of dialogue from the film, you chauvinist pig ape. What are you waiting for? You gonna eat me? Go ahead, choke on me. And then she pauses and she gets all apologetic and she says, oh, I didn't mean that. Honest, I didn't. Sometimes I get too physical. It's a sign of insecurity, you know? Like when you knock down trees, nice ape. Nice, sweet, nice, sweet, sweet monkey. You know, we're going to be great friends. I'm a Libra. What sign are you? No, I know, don't tell me. I bet you're an Aries, aren't you? Of course you are. I just know it. That's just wonderful. Folks, that is the actual dialogue from the 1976 Kong when Jessica Lange is yelling at Kong after he throws a bit of a temper tantrum. Kong 1976 was not made to be a farce or send-up. The script, however, was written by Lorenzo Semple Jr., most famous for writing the 60s Batman TV series, if you remember that. It boasted top-line people in front and behind the cameras. It was made with the most serious of intentions to rival the original 1933 classic. Kong 76 was considered a box office disappointment. But this is not true. The film recouped its budget and made a profit. It would be two more years before sequel Mania officially took over with Jaws 2. Then it would take 12 years, but De Laurentiis would trot out his monkey one more time for a sequel that made the original look like a masterpiece. The writers of the sequel, the, get this here, you're going to love this. The writers of the sequel tell how they overcame the roadblock of Kong's death in the 1976 film. And just in case you don't remember or haven't seen, I'm going to give you a spoiler. Kong dies at the end of the 1976 film, or did he? At the end of the 76 film, he climbs a trade center. These helicopters come out. They shoot the living hell out of him with the helicopter uh, machine guns. And they, they knock him off the World Trade Center. So let's just say that the helicopters didn't kill Kong, okay? He fell off the top of the World Trade Center. But I digress. Let's get back to this. So the writers said, and this is an actual quote, one day we were sitting around in Dino's office and Dino was saying how he'd love to do another Kong movie, but he couldn't figure out how to revive the story since Kong, the last time we saw him, had fallen off the World Trade Center towers and was dead. Well, Ron, one of the writers, piped up, that's easy, heart transplant. Dino cried, bravo, 
And that was it. We worked out a deal and he hired us to write it. Folks, that is how King Kong Lives got made. They really should have titled it King Kong Stinks. King Kong Lives was definitely cinema. You can argue if if the original, or I'm sorry, the 76 King Kong is cinema or not. I still say that the 76 Kong was made to absolutely 100% entertain. Could it have been better? Yes. But they really didn't skimp on quality. At that time, again, it was suitmation. There, even stop motion wasn't going to work, and we were still d- a decade away from CGI. So you, you got the best you got, and you got Rick Baker, who did a great job. Kong has a lot of emotion. So whether Jessica Lange liked the original 76 film or not, I'm going to say that the original 76 Kong qualifies a tiny bit in cinema only because of the way that De Laurentiis marketed the movie to get his money in pre-sales. But overall, I think the 1976 Kong is entertaining. However, King Kong Lives is cinema and it's strictly made to see if people could get robbed. That's why it was made. King Kong Lives was made for no reason whatsoever other than to cash in before Dino De Laurentiis lost the rights to make another King Kong movie. The only difference this time around, the budget was big, but the stars were not so big, was that this film was a study in animal cruelty. I don't know if you saw King Kong Lives, but I'm telling you, all it is is one endless scene after another of how we can torture the living hell out of King Kong. The film starts with the only true emotional scene out of the 76 film, and that was the ending where King Kong falls off the World Trade Center. And the critically injured ape, get this now, in the sequel, was moved to a secret government base where a giant artificial heart, the size, I'm kidding you, I'm not kidding you, like a small submarine, is lowered into his chest. And I can give you the show notes to prove this. With Jaws the Revenge, you saw about a psychic shark. Now we get a gigantic ape with a huge artificial heart. The writers of King Kong Lives recalled the reaction to their film when it was released. I love this story. They thought they had a hit, right? This quote coming up is when they went to go see the movie that night when it opened. So here is what they said. They said, we were sure we had a hit. Even after we'd seen the finished film, we were certain it was a blockbuster. We invited everyone we knew to the premiere, even rented out the joint next door for a post-triumph blowout. Get there early, we warned our friends. The place will be mobbed. Nobody showed. There was only one guy in the line beside our guests, and he was muttering something about spare change. In the theater, Our friends endured the movie in mute stupefaction. When the lights came up, they fled like cockroaches into the night. Next day came the review in Variety, and it said, Ronald Shusett and Stephen Pressfield, we hope these are not their real names, for their parents' sake. When the first week's grosses came in, the flick barely registered. Still, I clung to hope. Maybe it's only tanking in urban areas. Maybe it's playing better in the suburbs. I motored to an Edge City multiplex. A kid manned the popcorn booth. How's King Kong lives, I asked. He flashed thumbs down. Miss it, man. It sucks. That might be (laughs) the best, worst opening premiere story I've ever heard. 
I'm willing to bet that Ed Wood had a better premiere opening for Plan 9 from Outer Space than this. Maybe the chopper guns didn't kill Kong at the end of the 1976 film. Maybe Kong was tough after all, but how the hell did he survive a 110-story drop from the top of the World Trade Center? Big ape or no big ape? Nothing is surviving that. And don't you think a new spine, skull, and hip replacement might be in order as well? Let's not even address the fact that Kong has been comatose for 10 years, and those muscles would be like Linguini. So maybe think about gigantic ape physical therapy. Now, now there's a movie. Then the film does a bait and switch. The rest of the movie is dedicated to the heroes finding a Lady Kong and hooking her up with the king while the U.S. military hunts America's biggest hero and tortures the shit out of him in a multitude of ways. One particularly bad scene focuses on some rednecks that bury Kong up to his neck and play you're not so tough with them until the eventual hilarity ensues. There's no fun in watching an animal, fake or not, being abused and tortured for 90 minutes. Here's another quote from kongisking.net. The screenplay for King Kong Lives was not banged out by no talent hacks or studio drones forced to shine a turd for their bosses. On the contrary, co-writers Stephen Pressfield and Ron Shusett did great work before and after King Kong Lives, which firmly puts this film, ladies and gentlemen, into the realm of cinema. The point was to wring out what little dollars were left in King Kong by doing whatever can be done to make audiences feel something for him in the movie. D. Laurentiis once said about Jaws, Nobody cry when Jaws die, but when my Kong die, people cry. The sequel cynically played on audience sympathy to part them from their money and got over a million people, the authors being two of them, to spend their money yet it failed to regain its original budget. One of the writers, Stephen Pressfield, had this to say about De Laurentiis. His reputation was as a real Philistine whose ideas routinely destroyed any good creative project he produced. But I found him to be a colorful, charismatic figure, a bit intimidating, but always fun. I was always conscious, whenever I was included in a meeting with him, that I was in the presence of the last of a breed. There were no more De Laurentiis coming down the pike. How true that is. And perhaps this last quote from KongIsKing.net buttons it all up for me. Another factor to ponder regarding the production of King Kong Lives was its odd timing. In 1986, there was no outcry or demand for any sort of King Kong film, particularly another from De Laurentiis and company. It was released to general indifference, I was in college during this period and never even considered going to see it. The bad poster and few TV ads that I saw made very clear that this was nothing to waste beer and Pop-Tarts money on. I was in college, remember? That's what the author says. Clearly, De Laurentiis needed to exploit his Kong rights while he still had them and plowed forward, heedless of the public's apathy. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if that isn't cinema, I don't know what is. So before we go on to the 1998 Godzilla remake, I am hoping whether Godzilla vs. Kong is great or bad, its intention is to truly entertain. And I have admitted already on Twitter and on previous podcasts, 
I'm a little nervous about this one because from what we understand, Mecha Godzilla is in this film. And for me, those kind of creatures, the Mecha monsters, appeared when the original Godzilla series was in decline. So I'm not so sure about Mecha Godzilla and where we are with all of this, but let's find out. If you remember in Jurassic Park, Sir Richard Attenborough would use the line constantly, we spared no expense. Rumors circulated Hollywood since the early 1990s of an American Godzilla movie. In fact, even in the 80s, writers and directors left the project. They came and went, and by 1996, Toho and Sony TriStar came to terms, and the producing team of Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich were anointed to bring a full-fledged American Godzilla film to the U.S. masses. He would attack New York City. It would boast a big-name cast and incorporate state-of-the-art visual effects, there would be no man in a giant rubber suit in this 1998 Godzilla movie. Jurassic Park had raised the bar for giant reptilian creatures. In the wake of the successful 2014 reboot, which we all know did well and then spawned, of course, Godzilla King of the Monsters and now our upcoming Godzilla vs. Kong, it seems like a cheap shot to take yet another swipe at the much maligned and deservedly so 1998 mess. This time, it's to see how this film fits the cinema paradigm. I am not going to review Godzilla 1998. It's been done to death. My point is how this film is definitely cinema. This quote was from Godzilla actor Kempichiro Satsuma, who said this about the 1998 Godzilla when he left the Tokyo screening of the film. It's not Godzilla. It does not have the spirit. In 2003, they made a movie called Godzilla GMK. Giant monsters, all-out attack, that kind of thing. Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, whatever you want to call it. And in the film, uh, this, the Japanese military is sitting in this briefing preparing for a possible return of Godzilla. And one of the soldiers leans over to another and says, didn't the Americans encounter a similar creature in New York a few years ago? And the soldier replies, yes, there was a giant monster, but that was not Godzilla. So Toho made it very clear that they had distanced themselves from the 1998 abomination. This is why Godzilla 2000 was rushed out into theaters and got an American release on theatrical screens uh, just to dispel the image of the Geno 1998 Godzilla. I'll explain Geno in a moment. According to several stories, Toho insisted that the Hollywood Godzilla film not change the iconic monster's image. After almost 30 films, Godzilla was an international symbol. Toho finished off its Heisei series of films that, that restarted after 1984's The Return of Godzilla, and in the United States it was called Godzilla 1985. In the 1990s storyline, none of the other films ever happened except for the original Gojira and its hasty sequel, Godzilla Raids Again. Everything after that was ignored until 1984, when Godzilla resurfaced after a 30-year slumber to wreak havoc on downtown Tokyo once again. The 1998 film intended to reboot the entire Godzilla legend. It goes back to Godzilla's origin. And that's when fans knew there was a problem only five minutes into the movie. Devlin and Emmerich had no respect for the monster's legacy. Irate fans quickly renamed the creature Gino, which stands for Godzilla and name only. Or they just truncated the name and called him Zilla. Dean Devlin admitted he had little regard for the original 1954 film. And he said this, 
Most of the public, used to watching the hokey Japanese versions, will be thinking of men in suits and bad models, a kind of dinosaur hybrid who lumbers about in a semi-comical fashion trashing Lego buildings. Okay, so whereas the original Godzilla knocked down Lego buildings, Emmerich's monster dry-humped ones. Do you remember that? When it looks like in that one still with the lightning coming down and there's the Gino or Zilla. It looks like he's dry-humping that building. He's certainly not knocking it down. And most of the skyscrapers are taller than the goddamn monster. Devlin and Emmerich paid lip service to Godzilla's nuclear origins. But the redesign of Godzilla must be addressed. Devlin and Emmerich decided millions of fans for almost half a century would welcome a major redesign for Godzilla. Reports state that the only instruction Roland Emmerich gave special effects designer Patrick Totopoulos for the concept of the new monster was that he wanted it to run really fast. Cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, exercises a blatant disregard for the audience in the desire for profits. Devlin and Emmerich's hubris told them that they would create a new and improved Godzilla for the next millennium, a streamlined creature that, that just happened to look pretty much like the dinosaurs from Jurassic Park and The Lost World, two films that also happened to bring in bags of cash for Universal. So naturally, TriStar would want their own dinosaur movie while also cashing in on a tried-and-true brand name like Godzilla. The American creature would look more like an iguana on steroids spliced with a Komodo dragon. Reportedly, Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich wanted to keep the new design under wraps from the public as a surprise. Later, it was alleged that they didn't want Toho to see that they had violated the company's edict that created Godzilla's trust and legal agreement by the radical makeover for the monster. This new Godzilla in 1998 blamed nuclear testing on the French. Yes, the evil French and their Pacific Islands testing did it, not the United States. Iguanas were mutated from the nukes. Godzilla's trademark roar is remixed to incorporate more animalistic sounds, according to the filmmakers. Did we really need that? During the Memorial Day weekend, Godzilla took in $74 million. While still a good opening, Sony was extremely disappointed by the take. They were apparently unsure if fans would like the redesign and the movie in general, and they were hoping that the advertising would net them a hefty sum before bad word of mouth got around to kill it. Because keep in mind, you now have the burgeoning internet where word can start to spread faster than the way it did in the old days. Breathing atomic radiation is eliminated in favor of flames born from incredible breath gusts from the creature. Hazy flames roll over cars scattered like toys when the beast roars, but hardly coming close to anything radioactive. It's very clear these are orange flames coming from this lizard. In 1984's The Return of Godzilla, or the American 1985 version, it clearly showed that the monster fed on radiation after he feasted on fallout from a nuclear power plant. Devlin and Emmerich's beast eats tuna and is even baited by the army into a tuna trap in the middle of the city. Their new Godzilla flees from helicopters and even, like I said, dry humps a building. This lizard is a hermaphrodite where the original Godzilla was clearly stated as male. Our metrosexual creature in the 1998 version is said to be in search of an ideal island to lay its eggs. So out of all the islands on the planet, it chose Manhattan instead of everything in the Pacific where it's from. So it swims all the way from the Pacific islands to the other side of the globe to lay its eggs in the middle of the world's busiest and most overcrowded island, 
Manhattan. A great film reviewer. Uh, I don't know if he's still around anymore. He was known as Mr. Cranky. I used to love this guy's reviews. Uh, he said this about Godzilla 1998. There isn't an original or creative moment in this entire film. Godzilla is but an inflated Jurassic Park T-Rex running around New York City. When Godzilla jumps in the water and is chased around by a submarine, Emmerich and Devlin are quick to rip off the hunt for Red October. When Dr. Nico Tatopoulos, Matthew Broderick, discover Godzilla's lair in Madison Square Garden, the film wastes no time in ripping off Alien. In the end, the monster is dispatched by a few jet missiles after clumsily getting hung up in the George Washington Bridge's suspension cables. Like De Laurentiis showed, the way to get audience reaction is to torture animals, and this animal dies a slow, sad death in front of Broderick in an old Yeller-style ending invoking the famous De Laurentiis line that I said before, nobody cry when jaws die. The Godzilla 1998 database says this, Toho is often victimized by many original Godzilla hardliners, but if anyone should be blamed for Godzilla 1998, let it be Toho themselves. Toho was entirely informed of every detail of the film, including plot and script. Roland Emmerich went before Toho Studios in Japan in 1997, and it was then that year that Godzilla 1998 was set into motion. Yes, Toho gave some guidelines, but they were informed of the changes and even stuff that went against their own guidelines. So there you go, folks. According to Godzilla 1998 database, Toho was totally in the know on the redesign and they can't play victim that they were screwed over by Devlin and Emmerich. Dean Devlin said this about Toho's reaction to the new creature design, which supports Godzilla 1998 database's statement that they knew. Devlin said this, he said, they took a long time in deciding and then finally said, you know what? We don't even want to comment on it. We'll just say yes or no. And then they said, we love this look. We love your idea and we back it 100%. Go do it. Because it was so different, it was like a whole rebirth of Godzilla and I think they like that. Now Toho has a different take on that. Here's what they say to that quote from Devlin. They say, the executives at Toho initially didn't find the new monster so easy to relate to. When the American team first brought their pictures of their version of Godzilla to Japan for Toho's approval two years ago, the Japanese executives were shocked. It was so different, we realized, we couldn't make small adjustments, said Shogo Tomiyama, executive producer of the past six Godzilla films. That left the major question of whether to approve it or not. That was reported by the Los Angeles Times in 1998. When Toho saw Devlin and Emmerich's film, they allegedly flipped and took back the rights, vowing to never let America get its hands on their monster again. However, less than two years later, Toho released Godzilla 2000 to help fix the damage to Godzilla's image by Devlin and Emmerich. They introduced a redesigned Godzilla who, for the first time ever, actually had greenish skin and purple dorsal spikes. For you real Godzilla fans, you know, Godzilla all the way up until Godzilla 2000 or millennial Godzilla era uh, was charcoal gray. He was not green, even though he's been depicted as green and in models as green, Godzilla was never green. The Los Angeles Times goes on to report this as well. The producer of the original, Tomoyuki Tanaka, 
was on his deathbed when his successor, Tomiyama, went to visit to explain the changes. Forbidden from taking any pictures outside the studio for fear of leaks, Tomiyama struggled to find the words to describe the new 1998 Godzilla. I told him, it's similar to Carl Lewis with long legs and it runs fast, he recalled. Holy shit, that's the description you give? In 2003, Toho, like I had said, released that new Godzilla film that broke away from their Millennium series. It was a standalone picture, and, and it has a number of titles, which I refer to. Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, All Out Monster Attack, GMK. It doesn't matter. The new look of Godzilla, in my opinion, was even better. Taking the creature back to his original sinister look. They even whited out his eyes to give a sense of evil to the monster. Look, Godzilla 1998 was made to make money without respect for the culture and history that created the original film. If this had been anything but a Godzilla film, it would have fared better in audience and critical reaction. I really do believe that. It isn't even artistic. This movie is expensive and hollow and devoid of meaning and reformatted into a popcorn matinee film. The decision to make Godzilla an expensive effects film immediately departs from the series' aesthetic and iconographic tradition, which even resisted stop motion, like I said, as in like the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, or, or even what Tim Burton was doing with stop motion in, in Mars Attacks. The onslaught of exploitive digital effects effectively removes Godzilla 1998 from the world of juvenile pleasure. Now it would need a gargantuan audience, leaving nothing of interest for any age. It's not a good adult movie. It's not a good kids movie. It's not a good movie. It's not a movie. It's an event. And you know what? Before you think I said that, that was Gregory Salmon from Film Comment who said that, and he couldn't be more spot on. The original 1954 Japanese original offers hope and faith in mankind at its conclusion, even after the real-life horrors that Japan had inflicted upon it at the end of World War II. Devlin and Emmerich's film offers nothing, not even entertainment. It has nothing to say. That is why Godzilla 1998 is cinema. Godzilla 98 was a masterwork of marketing and advertising and product placement with the hope of massive merchandising opportunities, it is one of the few examples where cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, was largely rejected by the audience that was awake enough to understand this bad bill of goods being offered it. So now we are on the verge of Godzilla vs. Kong. Will it be cinema? Or will it be something fun, entertaining, and another successful entry into the legendary MonsterVerse series, which would allow us to have more Godzilla films and spinoffs in the future? Godzilla vs. Kong can either open the door for far more American Godzilla films or it can slam it as loudly as the 1998 film did. Let's find out. This is Harrison Smith. I look forward to talking to you again and thank you for listening.